Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty, from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And our second reading is Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 41, and this is on page 1056. Verse 41. Then Jesus said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord, How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely." As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said. This poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Well, let's pray. Uh, Given the passage, hard to find better words to pray than the words we've sung Show us Christ. Show us Christ. O God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word until every heart confesses Christ is Lord. Amen. Well, if uh, policemen are getting younger, then uh, why seven schoolchildren are definitely getting smaller. Uh, I was on the bus just the other day and there was one young pupil who barely reached the driver's ticket machine. She was wearing her room to grow into school uniform, her impossibly shiny shoes. The bag that she had on her back was so big she could barely stand upright. And I wondered, has she been initiated into the brutal and unforgiving world of the playground? Perhaps she's already witnessed the playground fights that are common to every generation. Fights that gather the pupils and panic the teachers and invariably end up with the same kind of standoff. Now, wherever the argument starts, it usually finishes in the same place. It's it's some sort of riff on the age-old question... Says who? 
says who? There's claim, counterclaim, and then some sort of appeal to some sort of other authority. And all those claims are really just variations on the uh, my brother's bigger than your brother kind of argument. Says who? It's actually the question that preoccupies us for all of our lives. Those of you who are studying at university, a large part of university study is an exploration of says who. An exploration of who says what and can we trust them. And that's no different if you're studying science. Uh, Mitch Stoke puts it like this on scientific education. Scientific education teaches students what kind of authorities to trust, which is crucial because most of what a scientist knows, indeed most of what each of us knows, is by way of testimony, what other people tell us. So you can't repeat all the experiments yourself, so you have to trust researchers and experts and journals instead. And of course, trust is just another word for faith. Says who? Says who? It's one of the problems of Brexit, isn't it? Yeah, says who? Who do you trust? The economists? Which ones? The politicians, any of them, the bureaucrats, and when it comes to life's big questions, when it comes to life's big questions, there can be no more important question than says who. Now, is this a meaningful or a meaningless universe? Is there a personal God or is it just impersonal stuff? Is there, as we were considering last week, life beyond the grave? Or will I, when I die, will I, in the rather stark words of Bertrand Russell, will I, will I when I die, merely rot? And whatever answers you get to those sorts of big questions, the first thing you're going to say by way of response is, says who? Sometimes it seems to me that it's the the comedians and the scientists who are the prophets of our age. When it comes to life's big questions, what they declare is the new thus says the Lord. And if they can make us laugh and they can dazzle us with their PhDs, well, we'll excuse their ignorance and their terrible arguments. Of course, you can be an expert in one particular area of life and you can be very ignorant in many others. I was talking to a specialist just the other day and she put it like this, I know more and more about less and less. If I continue on this road, eventually I will know everything about nothing. (laughs) Says who? From the cradle to the grave, it is the question that needs an answer. And it is the question that dominates the whole of Luke chapter 20. It's where the chapter begins and it's where the chapter ends. Now, at the beginning of the chapter, if you just flick over, you'll see these first century religious leaders come to Jesus with a challenge. Chapter 20, verse 2. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Who gave you this authority? In other words, says who? 
Now, who do you think you are doing the things you are doing, teaching the things you are teaching, claiming the things you are claiming? The chapter begins with a question of authority and, as we will see, it ends with a question of authority. There are three questions addressed to Jesus and one question Jesus addresses to us. Beginning to end, the issue is, says who? See, if you remember a few weeks back to that first question, a direct question about the authority of Jesus, tell us, verse 2, by what authority you're doing these things. And of course, in many ways, it was an entirely reasonable question. Entirely reasonable, given the things that Jesus was doing and teaching and claiming. You know, sometimes even reasonable questions can hide a terrible arrogance. Now, that was certainly true here for these teachers of the law. For them, at least, an authority questioned revealed their own authority threatened. Turn back over and look down to verse 46 and read Jesus' unflattering verdict on his earlier questioners. Beware the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the banquets. Maybe that's one of the reasons Jesus actually refuses to answer their question. You can be so full of yourself that you wouldn't listen anyway. Yeah, I know what I think. Don't blind me with the facts. Truth is, not every question deserves an answer. Question 2, verse 22, on the surface of it, it's a question about the authority of the state. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? But again, as we saw the other week, the question was more ruse than real. End of verse 20, they hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. They thought they could outsmart this uneducated peasant carpenter from Nazareth and to their astonishment, verse 23, they could not. He saw through their duplicity. Verse 26, they were Unable to trap him, astonished by his answer, they became silent. And then question three that we looked at last week is about the authority of the Bible. Well, as Paul explained, it's actually a question about the Bible and and marriage and resurrection, the sort of difficult and detailed question beloved of those who love nothing more than a deep theological discussion. But even complex questions can reveal someone's profound ignorance. Now, they they claim to know the scriptures. They plead fidelity to the very words of Moses. But their question betrays their desire to ridicule Jesus' teaching and to justify their own. Many a question is asked in an attempt to lampoon rather than listen to an opponent. But of course, they have more than met their match in Jesus. 
Taking the very scriptures they claim to know and honor, Jesus shows that they neither understand the words of the Bible, nor do they really know the God who speaks them. And so verse 40, just before our passage starts, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Because the Bible is full of questions. There are skeptical questions, bewildered questions, defiant questions, and some questions are good and honest and important. But it is a measure of the Lord's remarkable patience and grace that he allows all our questions. Even when they are petulant and dishonest and proud. That said, it is imperative to remember that the questions God asks of us are far more important than the questions we ask of him. See, the religious authorities ask three questions to Jesus, and then verse 41, Jesus turns the tables and asks one question to them in return. Now, for much of the chapter, it seems that, that people are, are wrestling with the question, what are we to make of Jesus? It's a question that C.S. Lewis puts, it has somewhat comic undertones. As Lewis puts it, when we ask, what are we to make of Jesus, it's like a fly deciding what it's going to make of an elephant. The people ask their questions, and then Jesus asks his And the questions Jesus asks of us are far more important than the questions we ask of him. And the most important question that any of us face is not what we make of Jesus, but what Jesus will make of us. Now to our ears, at least, the actual question that Jesus asks in verse 41 seems somewhat puzzling. Obscure even. Then Jesus said to them, how is it that they say that the Christ is the son of David? At which point most of us feel like that moment when you turn over an exam paper and you read the first question and you don't even understand the question. And of course, the question doesn't really make very much sense to us, but it makes a lot more sense once you understand two important things from ancient Israel. One thing about kings... One thing about sons. Firstly, kings. Israel's hope, the promise of the whole of the Old Testament, was for a king who would come and put this broken and rebellious world right. There had been kings in Israel's history, even great kings like David and Solomon, but even the best of them were flawed. Even the greatest as much a part of the problem as they ever were the solution. But God promised to David, Israel's greatest king. God promised to David a son. A son who would put the world right, defeat all the enemies of his people, and rule with justice and righteousness forever. And from David onwards, Israel was looking for that promised king. 
And that promised king or or Messiah or Christ, that promised king would be a son of David. The Christ, as Jesus puts it, is the son of David. But the second thing you need to understand to feel the force of Jesus' question is about sons or rather the relationship of fathers to sons in the ancient world. Because in Israel, as in many nations, a son was always under the authority of his father, as it remains in many parts of the world today. Although I have to say, such an important piece of news doesn't seem to have reached our household, but there we go. Two things you need to be clear about. God's promised king would be a son of David, and sons were always under the authority of their fathers. And if you get that background... You'll see why Jesus' question in verse 41 was so provocative, so world-shaking world to his questioners. How is it that they say the Christ, Messiah, promised king, how is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? A son is subject to the authority of his father. Yet David, Israel's greatest king, David says that he will instead be under the rule of his future promised son. See, God's promised king is not less than a son of David, but he was also considerably more, and the considerably more changes everything forever. See, Jesus is really forcing us and his listeners to face the identity of God's promised king. First, in the promises of the Bible they claim to believe, but secondly, in the flesh and blood of a person who is standing right in front of them. It's the biggest question that any of us face. Says who? And the provocative answer that Jesus delivers is, says me. A king who will be sat at the right hand of the father with all his enemies a footstool for his feet. Again, I think C.S. Lewis, Narnia writer, captured it well in another another essay of his where he said this. In the end, the face which is the delight or the terror of the universe must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or the other. Either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. It is written, we shall stand before him shall appear, shall be inspected. 
the promise, promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us that actually choose shall survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God. To be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in his son. Seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. Of course, what's interesting is, I don't know whether you noticed it in the passage, is that Jesus asks the question, but he doesn't really give an answer. Or at least Luke doesn't record any answer, either from those people who are questioning him or from Jesus himself. Jesus asks the question, and the reply is left hanging. But it's left hanging in a rather unsettling sort of way, as the best questions always are. Because what's implied seems to be so enormous, so outrageous, so provocative, it it takes your breath away. See, maybe you read Luke 20 and you are surprised at Jesus' refusal to answer an apparently reasonable question. Maybe you are impressed when he outsmarts the smartest minds on the question of the state. Now, maybe the stuff that we were looking at last week, all about marriage and and death and resurrection, has left you rethinking the whole when you die, you rot thing. Because you thought you had got this whole Jesus thing taped, and now you're not so sure. After all, what sort of person claims to be God's promised king in history? What sort of person tells the world that he will sit forever at the right hand of the eternal God, subduing all those who oppose him? What sort of king comes to silence the world's questions and then demands that they face a question from him? Well, the surprising answer that Luke gives us is the very same king who comes to die. A few chapters on and you discover that Jesus is once again being questioned, accused, condemned, crucified. As the Bible put it elsewhere, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. See, Jesus silenced his enemies with wisdom. But in the end, his enemies silenced him on a cross. But you know, it is in the silence of the cross that the deepest questions of the world are answered that God was in Christ, his promised king, reconciling us to himself, not counting our sins against us. This crucified and risen king 
the king to whom the whole world must give an account. You see, if you see who Jesus is, if you understand what he did in the past, it will change your future forever. But it will actually also change your present. Just as we finish, it's worth noticing very briefly the contrast that Jesus makes at the end of the chapter. The end of the chapter 20 and the beginning of chapter 21 because Jesus contrasts the pride, the self-importance and the greed of the teachers of the law, verse 46, who like to walk around in flowing robes and have the most important seats. The very same people, verse 47, who devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Jesus contrasts them with the widow, beginning of chapter 21, who famously gives two small coins. Tiny amount. But verse four, given out of her poverty, she put in all she had to live on. Jesus makes this contrast between wealth and greed and humility and sacrifice. And in in some ways, it seems a bit of a come down from all the lofty discussions about the identity of God's promised king. But then that's precisely the point. Empty religion produces pride, greed, performance, the performance of those, verse 47, who make lengthy prayers. But true and living faith in God, faith that bows before the authority of God's word, faith that willingly submits to the rule of God's crucified king, true and living faith is marked by humility and sacrifice. But then you still think, well, why this focus on the kind of tawdry, rather unspiritual subject of money? Well, perhaps, as an old boss of mine used to say, perhaps because the last thing to be converted in a man is his wallet. See, religion says, give money and it will secure you God's favor. Christ says God's favor cannot be bought because your debt is so huge. Religion says, give money and God might forgive you. Christ says, my death is the only place where you can secure forgiveness. Now give. And actually what matters is, is not the amount, but the cost. A tiny amount given out of poverty is the gift of someone who sees the glory of God's crucified king. It's possible that a large amount given out of wealth could be the gift of someone who is just concerned about performance the financial equivalent of making lengthy prayers for show. See, as one commentator put it on this passage, the point is God doesn't count. He weighs. God doesn't count. He weighs. See, if the biggest question any of us face is, says who? The provocative answer that Jesus provides is, says me. A king who will be sat at the right hand of the father with all his enemies a footstool for his feet. 
And so the questions God asks of us in Jesus are far more important than the questions we ask of him. In one sense, it matters less what we think of Jesus because it matters eternally what Jesus thinks of us. And if you really see who Jesus is, the promised, crucified and risen king, understanding that what he did in the past will change your future, it will also change your present. And if you really get it, the surprising thing Jesus says is, it will even change your bank balance too. Well, let's pray. Just a moment's quiet. We'll make our own response to the Lord, to God's promised King Jesus.